This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 301 from Monday, April 8, 2013, Planetary Migration. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Doing great. Now, you have an announcement to make. I, I do. As as many of you may have heard, CosmoQuest, which is our citizen science uh, virtual research facility for the public, is is facing some financial crises brought on by U.S. sequestration. And we are trying to keep ourselves going into the future by asking for your help in exchange for our silliness. So Nicole Gallucci and I are orchestrating a, uh, we're starting with 24 hours, but we may go out to 36 hour online hangout-a-thon, think Jerry Lewis telethon, except saving science, um, and using Google Hangouts because we lack money for mainstream television. And the technology will would rock that. It'll work just great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so we're going to do this starting uh, 10 a.m. Central on June 15th, going into June 16th. And we are going to start getting all of the events posted for that in the next couple of days. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, it should already be announced up on the CosmoQuest website. Um, the more you donate, the longer we will stay online bringing you science and bringing you silly. Fantastic. Uh, I, I think I'll be making an appearance and many, many of our other friends and we will get to watch you and Nicole go crazy over the course of yeah. 24 to 36 hours. If we get enough money in, yeah. Epic. All right. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, we'll have more information on the Astronomy Cast and Cosmic Quest and, and all around. I'm sure we'll mention it in the universe today. So, uh, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get on with the episode. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc., Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thelight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So we're so familiar with the current configuration of the planets in the solar system, but did the planets always orbit in this way? Did they form further out and then migrate inward to their current positions? And what about other star systems out there? So this is actually one of those topics that's changed a little bit since we started recording Astronomy Cast. I think, you know, with all of the discoveries of all these extrasolar planets, and especially these gigantic Jupiters that that orbit so close into their parent stars. It's really sort of made astronomers puzzle out how are these systems getting into their configuration. So, so you know, before sort of current ideas, what did astronomers think on how the planets got where they are? I honestly, they pretty much said with the solar nebula model, things formed in situ, rocks to gas to ice. And it was just that simple. We were lame. So small, small particles of dust clumped together and they got bigger and bigger and just 
whichever whichever gravity well this material could fall into, it formed it a did. planet. And and that part of the story is still what we have. I mean, the solar nebula model hasn't been completely thrown out. It's matured from you start with a disk of material and the sun's radiation dries out the inner part, things gravitationally clump together, they get bigger and bigger and clear their orbits, planet forms in place to planet forms and may migrate over time. And this idea really started to come about when we found 51 Pegasus back in 98 because that was a hot Jupiter where no hot Jupiter belonged. And over the years, we had to try and figure out, well, how do planets migrate? And and the model we'll be discussing today actually came out before our show. It came out in 2005, but it's really started to gain acceptance and gain prominence throughout the course of our recording. And And Fraser and I often come across topics where Fraser's like, so let's talk about, and I'm like, no, not yet. It's not mature yet. Well, this is one of those topics that is matured and it's ready to be discussed. I, I get very, very enthusiastic about the shiny new stuff, I, I will admit. Uh, and, and it's kind of like wine. Sometimes you just have to you wait, wait let it be age better a little, letter. wait a little more data to come in. Uh, so, okay, well, then I think, I mean, I think you just sort of glossed over that, but that discovery of what's 51 peg was was amazing, right? I mean, so what what is this object that, would, that they sort of discovered and, and how was it surprising? It, it's an object that's significantly larger than Jupiter, orbiting a star not too, dis, not too different from the sun, but its orbit is smaller than Mercury's orbit. So when you start with a model of planets form rocks near the sun, gas giants out from the sun, and then you find a gas giant on an orbit smaller than Mercury that says something is very wrong with the picture you've mathematically painted. Yeah, and so then, you know, they they find this object and they're like, okay, so now yeah. how, how does this work then? How did this get there? And so I guess that's when the investigation really started was how did these things get to these places? And, and that wasn't the only piece of data we had that had us confused. The other thing that we were dealing with was Looking at the moon and other bodies throughout our solar system, it appeared that there was this ancient period in time when things were just getting hammered with rocks from space. Uh, it, it looked like for a brief period, uh, the moon in particular was going through what is often referred to as a lunar catastrophe, where it was just this vast influx of objects from the outer solar system bombarding the inner solar system. We found evidence for this also happening on Mars, evidence for this also happening on Mercury. And it's a very brief window of just hundreds of millions of years, if that long. And, and so we needed to somehow figure out how do you get this random isolated period in time when they cream the inner solar system for no particularly good reason. Right. And I think, you know, the formation of the of the moon itself could be considered a catastrophe, perhaps an Earth catastrophe when it actually happened. Um, <laughs> but but I think what you're saying is that this, this period was actually quite, quite short. So, right. And and when the moon formed, that was just one giant impact. Yeah. The, the, the heavy bombardment or the lunar catastrophe, this was object after object after object hurling into the inner solar system and just clobbering the surfaces of all the worlds. And assuming if if the moon was so badly beaten up, you can just imagine what must have happened to the Earth. 
Yeah, we weren't entirely solid for a while there. <laughs> right. Just just great big rocks splashing into molten magma because the whole surface of the earth just was just kept in this liquid state from all this heat. Yeah, it must have just been not a place you'd want to live on. Yeah, yeah. We weren't entirely liquid, but it wasn't pretty. Yeah, yeah. And so so then and so what is the explanation for this late heavy bombardment then? Well, what we're looking at now, and it, it explains actually both of these problems of how do you get planets to move and what caused the heavy bombardment, is what we're looking at is something called uh, the Nice model. It's spelled like the word nice, but it's pronounced like the city in France, Nice. And, and this model says that when the solar system initially formed, we had Uranus and Neptune uh, maybe... 10 or more astronomical units, 10 or more times the distance between the Earth or the Sun, closer to the Sun than they are now. We had uh, Jupiter perhaps a little bit further out than where it is, Saturn further in from where it is. But over time, as they orbited, the icy bodies in the Kuiper belt, which now is is tenths of an Earth in, in amount of total mass, Maybe it was tens, maybe it was hundreds of Earth's masses worth of icy stuff early in the solar system. And as that material came tumbling into the inner solar system, it gravitationally interacted with these planets. And it interacted in such a way that the ice got hurled into the inner solar system and the planets, slowly over time, most of them got moved outward. And as they moved... Uh, what ended up happening is Jupiter and Saturn ended up in this resonance such that for every two times Jupiter went around, Saturn would go around once. And this would cause them to keep lining up over and over and over. And basically, they pumped all of this gravitational energy into all of the stuff around them. And they sent rocks left and right creening into the inner solar system. They caused Uranus and Neptune to end up on highly elliptical orbits. Some computer models actually have Uranus and Neptune reversing location in wow. the solar system. I mean, we see Uranus is tilted over on its side, so something right. hit it. Yeah, or torqued it. Torqued it, yeah. And so during what we think was probably just a brief period in the history of our solar system, everything got flung all over the place. And and in this process, Jupiter came in, Saturn went out, Neptune and Uranus went way out. And rocks from space bombarded the inner solar system, depleting the Kuiper belt of most of its mass. And would that also explain where maybe the water on Earth might have come from? Yes. So so when we start trying to figure out volatiles, that's one of the sources of volatiles. And, and so we're looking at a solar system that's roughly 5, 5.5 billion years old. And it looks like all of this happened at a period of roughly 3.8 billion years ago. Wow. Yeah. Universe humming along, solar system humming along, and sudden wham. So how much of that then depends on there being Jupiter and Saturn working together? If there was just Jupiter or just Saturn, would we have had the same outcome? Well, it, it's hard to tell what magnitude it would have been because we still had Neptune and Uranus. And depending on how they lined up over time, it could be that you ended up with a smaller version of this with two different worlds uh, in resonance causing all of this to happen through a different form of gravitational interaction. Now, both Uranus and Neptune are smaller than Saturn, so the effect would have been smaller. Um, 
And and so it it's hard without running the models to say just how bad it would have been, but there could have been something similar happening through a different form of resonance. So Jupiter, good for the Earth yes. or bad? Um, early in the solar system, quite bad, but we got over it. I mean, that's the question, right? Is it, you know, gobbling up all of the debris in the, in the solar system? And we talked about this last week that it's, it's still getting hit by a surprisingly large amount of, of material. Right. And, and this is where good for the earth or bad for the earth. Um, we do have to say, what period in time are you looking at? So it, it's like Jupiter has a bad boy past where it had to beat up the entire solar system for a while there. So when you had this resonance taking place, the gravitational interactions between Jupiter and Saturn, they grabbed all of the rocks that were at the time in Trojan orbits, these uh, orbits that are in resonance with uh, the Sun and Jupiter or the Sun and Saturn, um, flung those into the inner solar system. And then just the depleting of the Kuiper belt. So during that epoch in time, it's clear that having these four giant worlds in the outer solar system was really bad for the inner solar system, except for maybe the whole bringing water. But that could have happened in a less traumatic fashion. But over time, now as we look at it, yeah, it's clearly eating rocks periodically. And what we are still trying to figure out is, is it protecting us today or is it potentially flinging things still? And we're not sure if it's gotten past its bad boy habits. Now, we look out into the into the universe, into the galaxy, and with the different, I mean, we've now seen thousand, more than a thousand extrasolar planets. So, so what are astronomers starting to see with the other star systems out there? So, so as we look at these hundreds of star systems, many of which have multiple planetary systems, what we're seeing is in young systems, we're finding the, the planetesimal disks, the disks of material that's still forming into planets that fits that solar nebula model that we had before. What we're finding as we look across more and more and more different solar systems is there is this... Um, overabundance of gas giants that are right snuggled up next to their host star. And occasionally we've caught evidence for what we think are stars that have eaten some of their inner planets. So where we're still left trying to sort things out is what starts what starts the migration, what stops the inward migration? Uh, why is it that everything didn't fall into the sun? How is it that we ended up with these nice circular orbits? Well, we can answer that for, for our solar system. We think that over time, the constant interactions with what's left in the asteroid belt and the solar and the uh, Kuiper belt had the effect of taking Neptune and Uranus's orbits and circularizing them and probably all of these interactions over time have worked to circulate most of the orbits in our solar system, except for poor Pluto. Right. So is is that sort of the the trend that the planets want to go on through their gravitational interactions, and especially with all of these smaller objects, is to circularize their orbit? Yeah, as long as there's other stuff out there to interact with, the, the larger bodies through all of these little tiny interactions, it all adds up over time to a tug that averages out to circular. So that that's one of the neat things about having this distribution of debris is every single interaction is very small. But over time, all of these interactions add up to a massive effect that initially migrated the planets outward and then went on to circularize their orbits and stabilize our solar system into the configuration we have today. 
But there's still this mystery of, well, while things were migrating inwards, why did they stop? What was it about the distribution of material in our solar system that made things such that we don't have Jupiter in an orbit smaller than Mercury's, whereas in so many other solar systems, we do see that. But we're also now finding rocky solar systems that look more like ours. So um, we still have a lot of really big question marks in our understanding. Now, do we know if those stars, like the you know 51 Peg, are you know the planet that that hot Jupiter that's orbiting it? Do we know that 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 hot planet is in a stable orbit, or is it possibly just spiraling inward and we're just catching it at a at a very terrifying time? In in some cases, it's pretty clear that we're catching them in, at a very special time. Uh, in in a few cases, we found planets that have material getting sucked off of them, so they're getting uh, basically gravitationally sucked dry, and they'll eventually spiral in and die rather badly. We see some planets that have tails from the material that's getting blasted off by the uh, radiation pressure. Uh, from the stars that they're orbiting. So there, there's lots of nasty things going on that are going to cause some of the planets that we see to eventually spiral into their doom. Uh, it, it's not a friendly galaxy. Uh, getting stable solar systems isn't always straightforward. So you mentioned that one of the big mysteries here is this idea that that we don't really know why the planets stop this motion? Why do they settle into this final location? I mean, there must be some theories on this. Well, people put forward ideas such as, well, some stars, perhaps they blast empty their innermost solar system and the act of flinging material in that that may happen through other solar systems heavy bombardment doesn't fill in that particular area of the solar system, allowing things to keep getting interactive um, interactions that cause them to spiral further and further in through various drag or other frictional effects. So so here the idea is if the star can blast out a region in the center or planetary formation can clear out a region in the center, an outer planet doesn't have a reason to keep migrating. But if that doesn't happen, if the inner part of the solar system perhaps isn't able to form planets or doesn't get blasted free um, of material through the, through the star's radiation pressure. Maybe that gas giant, as it goes around, it, it's constantly interacting with the inner materials, and there's this drag-like effect where it keeps nomming the stuff and spiraling in further and further and further. So if you have an empty gap, that feeding process stops, migration inward stops, you don't have that gap it just keeps going in that's one of the theories that people are working on it's it's not finalized yet we don't know enough yet is it possible that you know that there were a lot more planets and a lot more more material and it did migrate just inward into its doom in our solar system, we don't think so. Um, it, in, in our solar system, it, it seems like what we have makes sense. We can explain the mass of pretty much everything but the Kuiper belt. So while it's possible, um, there's no reason to believe that that's what happened based on we do see formations in terms of composition, in terms of chemistry that make sense for things forming 
in specific parts of the solar system and they're not being a whole bunch of material that we can't account for that that got eaten in the past. Now, you know, right now, I guess there's this migration that happens in the early days of the solar system, but there's probably other migrations going to happen in the end of days in the solar system as the sun bloats up into a red giant and, you know, starts to give off material. It's going to sort of bring that whole cycle around again, right? Well, here's where it starts to get interesting is that's a slow and gradual process. So over time, the sun's continually losing mass. And as it loses mass, its gravitational pull on the rest of the planets is is decreasing. This allows everything to slowly migrate outwards, but it's a constant effect. And there doesn't appear to be any trigger points in this effect that will cause a sudden change in the dynamics of the solar system. It looks like things will just expand out as as the gravity changes. Um, Where it gets interesting is where you have the sun's radiation pressure changing as it transitions from being the nice hot star that it is now to a much cooler but significantly brighter red giant star in the future. So we're going to have the solar surface creep up pretty much on top of us. So it's going to be this interesting combination of the light is going to be right on top of us, blasting us. But the gravity from the sun, even though it's physically larger in radius, its gravitational pull will be less at that point because of the mass loss that has happened. Um, We don't see any reason for anything bad to happen as a result of this other than Clearly, Mercury and Venus will be consumed. Well, right. And I mean, will they? I mean, they'll be inside yeah. the atmosphere of the sun. Yes, they will be. They And and there will be just so much drag that they'll just spiral inward at that point. And, and I, I think it's more a matter of the sun's going to blow at, bloat out and just eat them. But They're not going but, to have a choice. But what will actually happen to them inside the sun? It's hot and dense and they will become happy little plasma lock of planets. So, right, and they will just migrate right into the core because they'll be heavier, right? And they'll just sink into well, the core of the sun? So, so the, the, the thing is, the, the, it, it doesn't quite work like that. So well, well, please, you, you explain have... to me exactly how it does work because it's <laughs> so, awesome. I mean, the, the way to think of it is you're, you're taking a rock and throwing it into a vat of um, boiling metals, boiling... Uh, plasmas, that's not how you think of plasma, but it, it's so hot that that rock is going to just turn into its component atoms rather quickly. Some of those component atoms are going to be light, they'll stay towards the surface. Some of the component atoms are heavy, those may, depending on how they get mixed, sink somewhat. But I mean, our sun's atmosphere, it has titanium in it. Our sun's atmosphere, it has all sorts of other heavy metals in it that, that we see in the spectral line. So there's no reason to think that it's like throwing a rock into a pond. It's, it's really uh, more like throwing a glob of butter into boiling soup. The glob of butter starts out at a higher density than the soup, but it, it's not like it sinks to the bottom. It's more like it starts to sink and then becomes part of the boiling soup in the process. So we'll just see this smear of mercury in the atmosphere of, of the sun for a few rotations, and then it'll be one with the sun. It's We're, we're getting to see how this, this happens, actually. And we, we talked about this in the Weekly Space Hangout last week, where we've observed some white dwarfs that are consuming... Uh, planetary bits in their solar system. This is out in the Hyades cluster. 
and and we can see in the compositions of the the white dwarf atmospheres the remnants of these shredded dead no longer planet bits that that ex- that used to exist and are now consumed what we're now seeing with these white dwarfs the signature of the planets in the atmosphere of the white dwarfs is that sort of a signature that we may see when mercury gets consumed uh, it will be dead but <laughs> Right. Yeah. Someone um, else will see in another solar system. Right. And, and as we've as, as we've said, you know, astronomers are still on the fence. Will Earth be consumed? Will it be just scorched? You know, I, I think more and more of the evidence is piling up that mass loss will be significant enough for us to perhaps be safe. It's it's really a question, though, of just how big will the red giant be? So I have one one last sort of series of questions here, and this is about interactions between either in binary systems or other star systems that may come close or come, you know, to us. W- would these have any impact? Like, for example, you know, when we first formed, we were in this solar nebula with a lot of other stars, and there was a certain amount of gravitational interaction between these these objects. Would that have any impact on the on the planets that formed and perhaps how they migrated? Well, when when we first formed, luckily we seem to have been in a tight enough ball within the, this star forming region that we that we were fairly safe. We did form with this extensive Kuiper belt. There's the Oort cloud surrounding us, and and while we have probably gone through periods where different external objects have influenced how many. Kuiper belt objects or Oort cloud objects have been disturbed and flung into the inner solar system. It, it doesn't seem to have, with our solar system, affected the planets. Now, we do think that in other solar systems, there are now rogue planets that have been stripped out of other solar systems and now wander somewhat lost between the stars. We seem to have just escaped that fate. So far. <laughs> Luckily, stellar interactions are so rare that statistically it's unlikely that something of a significance to remove a planet would ever occur. Yeah, I mean, even when we collide with Andromeda, chances are nothing's going to happen. And and what's kind of neat is, is I've seen uh, people run mathematical uh, computations on a black hole passing quickly through our solar system. And if a black hole passes quickly through our solar system, it may not wreck too much havoc it all depends on the crossing times um so it's it's kind of neat to realize that it's actually really hard to destroy a solar system is this the point where we plug phil's book again Eh, we can yeah death from the skies he's got a whole chapter just on uh on a black hole moving through the solar system and it's uh it's an awesome book yeah if it goes slowly we're all toast luckily (laughs) black holes are rare (laughs) yeah exactly uh but it would be the same as a you know very massive star moving slowly through our solar system also a very bad day yes yeah yes yes cool all right well thank you very much pamela my pleasure thank you thanks for listening to astronomy cast a non-profit resource provided by astrosphere new media association fraser kane and dr pamela gay You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at cosmoquest.org. 
If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. <laughs>